The message today is God's restraints for man's sins. God's restraints for man's sin. I begin with a question. Why the explosion of violence and crime in America today? Why the explosion of violence and crime in America? I awakened today at 6 o'clock on the dot. I set my clock for that. It was on one of the radio stations, and so it came on the news of the day or the news of the morning. I had not gotten out of bed, and they started talking about two people were shot somewhere, some more in a shopping center somewhere else. And they went around the country, and they enumerated all the different crime scenes. And obviously, while I was sleeping last night, there were a number, number of people who were killed and shot across America. And so it is every day. And it didn't used to be like that. Just a few years ago, you just didn't hear. I mean, there was a lot of crime, of course, nationally, but it, was, it wasn't a flood of violence and wickedness like we're seeing today. What lies behind that? What, why the explosion of violence and crime in America today? Well, I'm not going to read a text, but you can open your Bible to the first chapters there, chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, and you know the story. I won't read all the accounts for time's sake. God created man, and he gave that man, Adam, several different commands. He commanded him to take charge and rule and have dominion, or some of the words he used, to rule over the earth, the physical universe. He told him to reproduce, which implies having a family. It implies marriage. It implies a number of things. And this was man's assignment. You'll find it written out in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Be fruitful and multiply, says verse 28, and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the birds and the cattle and the creeping things and over everything on the earth. So God put man in charge of the entire universe to rule over it, to have dominion. That's exactly his word. So we call that passage, we've named it the dominion mandate. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 24, we find that God then provides for the man a wife. In verse 18, God saw that the man was living alone, and he said, that's not good. And so he created the woman. And in verse 24 of chapter 2, he instituted the very first institution that God made, and that was the family. Here's the beginning of family in the Bible, Genesis 2 and 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And so the very first family was created, and God married them here in verse 24. I, I guess that was the first garden wedding ever held. And so we have the family instituted. Now, very soon in the very next chapter, we have the account of sin entering into the creation. And as you know, sin impacted everything in the culture. 
Sin touched every part of humanity, and it brought ruin, and above all, it brought death. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter number 18, I read these words, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's a law of God. That's a universal principle of God. Sin brings death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And death became the universal experience of every single human being upon the earth. As much as we hate to think about it, all of us are going to die. Babies die. Teenagers die. Young adults die. Old people die. Black people and white people, rich people and poor people, educated and illiterate people. Everybody dies. George Bernard Shaw made a famous quote, and it's so true. He said, the statistics on death are quite amazing. One out of one die. And his point was, death is a universal thing, and the reason for death, the cause of death that we forget is not just a physical problem. The cause of death is sin itself. And so sin comes in in chapter 3, and in chapter 4, we begin to see what happens when sin invades. We see the first child, a man named Cain, murder his own brother, Abel. And so sin brings death. Sin brings evil. And here's the thing about sin. Sin always grows. Sin never remains static. People think, well, I can sin a little bit and get by with it. Well, maybe, but sin also is going to grow. Sin is always going to expand, increase, advance. Sin is always moving forward, seeking more territory. Sin is like leaven that a woman puts in the dough, and she puts just a tiny little piece of yeast or, dough or leavening in the dough that she's making, and she waits a little while, and the whole thing has the yeast in it. It's growing. It's expanding. It is always pushing the limit and pushing the border. And before long, that leavening has permeated every single part of that dough that she's placed it in. We're Southerners, and uh, we know about something like sin. Another good example is kudzu. <laughs> you plant one little plant of kudzu on, on the bank somewhere, and go back in a few years, and it's covered the whole thing. It's like sin. It never stops growing, advancing, spreading, increasing. And so we have that. And so the world after the fall becomes increasingly wicked, increasingly evil until it is taken over. In fact, we now go to chapter 6, and we're just kind of working our way here through the early pages of the Scripture. And in chapter 6, I read that in verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man on the earth, that it was great. And he looked down and saw that every imagination, every bit of man's thinking process was evil, and the Bible says, continually. It 
was a constant, continuous thing. Every activity of man prior to the flood was now evil and wicked. And so God sent the flood, a universal judgment upon sin. And he could only find eight righteous people that he could spare from the deluge at that time. Now, we go through chapter 7 and 8 of the book of Genesis, and that's descriptive of the flood. We come to chapter number 9 and verse number 6, and Noah has just gotten off of the, off of the ark, and God is speaking to him. He spoke directly in those days to men. And as he speaks to Noah in verse 6, he establishes government or the estate. So Genesis 2.24 is the establishment of family. Genesis 2 and or Genesis 9 and 6 is the establishment of the state or of organized government. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, that's a murderer, anyone who takes another person's life by man, somebody in that in that system of justice, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. He doesn't say that about any other sin. You see, murder is a unique sin because it is an attack upon, it is destruction of the image of God. When I kill a person, when I murder someone, I have attacked and destroyed the image of Almighty God himself. That's a special sin. And God said, if anybody does that, verse 6, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by somebody shall his blood be shed. Who is that somebody? Well, I believe that is the beginning of the organized system that we now call the state or we call government. And so God established the state in Genesis 9 and 6. And what is the purpose of the state? That verse tells you it, it, it implies it, it hints at it. The purpose of the state is to restrain sin. The purpose of the state is to hold back violence against other people. In other words, the purpose of the state is the law enforcement function of government and of the state. So God established a family and the purpose of the family is restrain sin. Train the children so that they will know the difference in right and wrong, in pleasing God and not pleasing God. And then God establishes the state and the purpose of the state to restrain evil in culture. And then we go clear into the New Testament now, and you don't need to turn there. I'll just quote it for you. Matthew 16 and 18, and it says that Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The gates of hell, evil, will never overwhelm and completely destroy the church of God. That there will always be churches. One church might disappear. Some denomination might completely go out of existence. But there will always be churches that will represent the Lord. And what is the purpose of the church? It is to proclaim God's truth in such a manner that we restrain sin. And so that's basically the message this morning. God has three institutions, and I've been talking about them. This is, what, the third or fourth week. 
And the three institutions, the family. And what is its purpose? Train the children so they'll know God and restrain sin. The state. What is the purpose of the state? To enforce justice and law so that sin is restrained and it doesn't overwhelm the whole system. And what is the purpose of the church? Christ founded his church to take the gospel to every creature. And when people understand the gospel, sin is held back and restrained. I want you to have a mental picture of something. So let's picture standing over on the coast of South Carolina. And there's a great, great storm out at sea. And the sky is black and the clouds are down much lower than normal, and there's fog, and there's a huge wind. You can hardly stand there. Your clothes are quivering in the breeze, and you stand there and look out, and you see those great waves, and they rise up, and then they fall down, and then they come into the shore, and they crash into it with a sound like thunder. And you're watching this scene of a huge storm that is coming into shore. But you notice Somebody at some point in time has built a great wall there, a seawall. And the storms are coming in, but those waves are crashing up against that seawall. And as they impact it, the spray goes up into the air, and you hear the sound of the water and the wind and the waves, but it doesn't intrude. But so far, there's a wall of protection that holds back even the power of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, I believe that God himself has erected a seawall, a great wall of protection to hold back evil and sin in our culture. And that wall is composed of the family, the church, and the government. And when they function properly, they hold back that ocean of evil, those angry waves that would destroy our society. But when those institutions, family, government, church are weakened and they no longer perform their function, if any one of them fail, then there's going to be a flood. There's going to be a deluge. The angry ocean of evil is going to come far in, and it's going to do much destruction. So today, God's restraints for man's sins. To restrain sin, first of all, God put a conscience in every individual. Every single one of us has something in common. We have a conscience. The word conscience, if you look at it, C-O-N, just forget that. The rest of the word is science. And science is basically in the English language, that means knowledge. With knowledge is what that means. What is your conscience? The conscience of a human being, I would define the conscience as being the intuitive knowledge of right and wrong that God has placed in every human heart. The conscience, that intuitive knowledge You didn't have to be trained to have a conscience, though the conscience can be trained and sharpened, but you have a conscience. You were born with a conscience. And the Bible teaches that every single human being who ever lived 
God placed within them this marvelous instrument called conscience. Adam and Eve had that conscience. And you remember the day that they sinned, they took, they disobeyed God, they rebelled. There's that fruit, whatever it was, hanging there. God said, you will not eat of the fruit of that tree. That one thing, you only got one law. You don't have ten commandments. You got one, don't eat. Satan came and tempted them. They had to eat. They took that fruit. They ate it. And when they did, what's the very next thing you read about with them? Where they had formerly been walking with the Lord in the garden every single day and fellowshipping with God. They knew God intimately. What happens now? They hide from God. What told them that they had done wrong? The conscience within them rose up. And the conscience said, Adam and Eve, you're wrong. You're guilty. And we got a whole world of people today trying to make people not feel guilty. You know, the whole psychological world nearly is based upon the fact that we don't want anybody to feel guilt. And I hear preachers even apologize. Now, I'm not putting you on a guilt trip. You know, I've about decided something. America needs to be on one giant guilt trip right now. I mean, what do you mean you're taking away the effect of the conscience? The conscience is the knowledge. I've done wrong. God put it there. So I feel guilty. But God provided a way for me to get over my guilt. He provided the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins where all our sins and guilt can be taken away. That's the message of the Christian faith. But if you take away the guilt, you've taken away the work of the conscience. You know what the conscience is? It's God's red warning light flashing on the, da the dashboard of your heart. And when you do wrong, that little light comes on and flashes, just like the fixed engine light that gives you chills, or the oil light, you need oil. You don't delay and dilly-dally around. You go and get that taken care of. And when God's warning light of conscience comes on the dashboard of your heart, you have to take care of that. And when a culture says, oh, ignore that. Just don't ever feel guilt. Don't, don't do that, you know. When you do that, you are inviting sin to increase in that culture. I want you to turn down your Bible with me, and I want you to go to the book of Romans, chapter number two, and let's talk a little bit more, because to restrain sin in individual life, to restrain sin in the life of individuals, God put a conscience in every human being. Romans 2, 14, when the Gentiles, now the Gentiles, when you read that in your New Testament, those, that means people that don't know the truth of God. They don't have a Bible. Gentiles are pagans or they're idol worshipers. They're people that are totally without God's truth. When the pagan world, which did not have the law, but it still by nature does the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. And they show the work of the law written in their hearts. There's your second definition of conscience, right in your Bible. Verse 15, what is conscience? It's the work of the law written in the heart. That 
I don't need anybody to tell me that it's wrong to steal. I don't even need a Bible for that. And you go to the pagan tribe somewhere living off that never heard anything, don't know the Scripture, and you know what? They know that you don't steal, and they probably have laws in their little tribe against stealing because they know you can't exist as a society if everybody's stealing. Even in pagan societies, it's wrong to steal your fellow citizen's husband or wife because you can't have a society if everybody's stealing their husband and wife or somebody else. It breaks down. Even pagan people admire truth. Even pagan people admire justice and have some primitive form of justice. And where did they get that? They never had a Bible. They never heard a sermon. They never read a book. They get it because God placed his law in their hearts. And they have the knowledge of right and wrong, the intuitive knowledge that God placed within their life. And when they violate God's law, it activates that little light on the dashboard. And they know that they have done wrong. And so they have that knowledge. And when people ignore their consciences, there's a verse over in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says, if you ignore that conscience repeatedly, then you sear it like we would overcooking a, a steak or a hamburger on the grill. We sear it. And it becomes hardened and unresponsive because... We've sinned against the light over and over and over. So every individual has his conscience. And the purpose of the conscience is God is saying, whoa, go no further. You're in forbidden territory. What you did was wrong. Back up. Take care of your sin. Come to Christ. To restrain sin, God put a conscience in every human being. But move on with me. Secondly, the family, God put the family here to restrain sin. There's a very familiar verse you can all quote, Proverbs 22 and 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. The idea there of training, the word there used in Proverbs 22 is, is like we would train a, a vine want to climb up a wall or a rose bush on a trellis. And say, so we would go by periodically and we would take the growing parts of that vine or that rose bush or whatever, and we would wrap them around the trellis or we would move them. And, and over a period of weeks and months, we can train that vine to go where we want or that rose bush to go where we want on that trellis. And in the same way, gradually, we take a little child while their heart is tender, and the mom and dad begin to bend the twig, the old saying, as the twig is bent, so will it grow. And moms and dads, our purpose is to bend the twig and head the child in the right direction. Now, they're a free moral agent. They get a chance. When they become adults, they can do anything they want to do. You can't control that. But on the other hand, you can largely form their character if you will train them in the way that the Scripture says to do. And you do this through positive discipline, by training, 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 training. You do this through negative discipline. 
The Bible calls that negative discipline the rod of correction. Largely forgotten in America today. We think that behavioral psychologists know more than, than God, and so they tell us, oh, you're not, not to ever punish a child. And because there's never any pain associated with wrongdoing, people go on and keep going. And the family today is breaking down in its responsibility to restrain sin. Now, that's all I'm going to say about it today because that's, I'm going to give you a full message on that, positive discipline, negative discipline, what the Bible says, responsibilities of parents. I hope you'll come next week. It's just a perfect, uh, relevant message for a Mother's Day and, and, and fathers too, of course. And so, but I'll tell you this, if you want to spare your child a world of heartbreak and sorrow, if you want to spare them that, you train them up in the Bible way. And if you ignore that, you know what you're saying? You're not educating the conscience of that child. That, con that, that conscience it needs to be shaped like that twig. And if you don't train that child, then that child may have a lot of heartbreak in life. They'll get the training one way or another, but you don't want it to be in the jail. You want it to be in God's way, don't you? So the families was placed here, the family was placed here to restrain sin. Now, thirdly, the state has the same role. The role of the state is to restrain sin and evil. And we've already looked at Genesis 9 and 6 where God established government. He gave somebody the authority to punish murderers and people who shed other people's blood, people who are violent. Now, let's go to Romans 13, and it's familiar to us by now. I keep referring to it, but I will throughout this series because it's so vitally important. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God, and whosoever resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And if they resist, they shall receive to themselves damnation. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil." Will you be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you will have praise of him. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if you do evil, you should be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And so you see here God's further explanation of the purpose of government and the state. The purpose of the state is not to be a nanny state that cares for everybody, that gives people money. The purpose of the state is not to uh, be involved in hundreds of things that our government is now involved in that I can't, I don't have the time to explain. The purpose, the primary, the first responsibility of government is law and order. It's the law enforcement function, the policing function, if you will. The purpose of the state is we have the police and the law enforcement to hold back the evil. It's part of God's wall of protection against sin, to restrain sin. 
Look in your Bible with me. Who are those who are those people that in Genesis it said, if anybody sheds blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. Who are the people that, are, that have that authority? Well, we look in verse number one, and they're called higher powers. We look down in verse number three, and they're called rulers. It might be presidents. It might be um, a parliament or a congress or a senate. It might be a king or a prince or a queen, but however that society has chosen to govern, those people are placed in that position of authority. And remember, all authority is God's authority. We've talked about that. There is no authority but what comes from God, and God delegates that authority to man, to government in this case to parents in the family. And so God grants this authority here, and they're called higher powers. They're called rulers in verse 3. In verse 4, they're called ministers of God. And their primary purpose of all of them is hold back that storm of evil and wickedness that will inundate our culture if we don't. And in verse 2 and 4, it says, if you resist you will receive damnation or judgment. You'll get in trouble if you resist. For heaven's sakes, just do what the policeman asks you to do. Just do what he asks you to do. If it's wrong, go to court. That's why we have a court system. But don't try to settle it there. I thought I'd hear one feeble amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Peter 2 and 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance or law of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. There we go again. For so is the will of God. Look at that phrase. This is the will of God that we submit ourselves to. And the word governor there is an interesting word. It's hegemon, H-E-G-E-M-O-N, hegemon. We get the word hegemony from it, where we hear about American hegemony, American dominance or leadership in the world. And that same word is the word translated governor here, meaning a leader or a chief person, a person with God-granted authority. And the Bible teaches here the law enforcement function is the function of government. So we have the individual. Sin is restrained in an individual by a conscience. We have a family. Sin is restrained by training our children in the ways of God. We have a state, and the role of the state is to restrain the evil by the law enforcement function. And fourthly, we have the church. And what is the church's role? So the individual, sin is restrained by the conscience. The family, the sin is restrained by discipline, training children in discipline, the rod. And in the state, it's the sword. Romans 13 and 4 talks about the sword there. Now, what is the weapon we have? 
We don't have a rod. We don't have a sword. The church as a collective body doesn't have a conscience. What is our weapon? Our weapon is the gospel. It's to proclaim the truth of God's word. And listen to this. Romans 1 and 16, you know the verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It, the gospel, is the power of God to them that believe, to everyone, to the Jew first, and to the Greek or to the pagan. The church's role in restraining sin and evil is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think that's not powerful? May I tell you that our weapon is the strongest weapon of all, the gospel of Christ? You see, the gospel has power to produce a new person. The sword of the stake can't produce a new person. The rod of correction by a parent can't produce a new person. Even the conscience that God placed in an individual can't replace, can't restrain sin in an individual. But do you know what can better than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, 2 Corinthians tells me that if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. You know what's better than punishing sin? What is better is having a people who have a new heart who don't want to sin. What is better to restrain sin is people who have a new heart and their desire is to please the Lord. And when that desire to please the Lord and do the right thing that comes from true salvation, when that occurs in a person's heart, you don't have to worry about them going out here and violating the law and doing the kind of evil and wickedness that we see right now in our society. Salvation is transformative. And so a man says, I was an adulterer. I used to run around and I was unfaithful with my wife. I was trying to seduce women at my office. But God saved me and he took that away. And I don't want to do that now. I want to please the Lord. And somebody else says, I was a liar or I was a thief. But I got saved. And you know what? The Lord put a new desire in me. I don't want to take anybody's property. I know that's wrong. I want to always speak the truth as closely as I can. Somebody said, you know what? I was an addict. But God took the very desire for that drug or that beverage or whatever away from me. And he made me a new person in Jesus Christ. Somebody says, man, I had a dirty mouth. Now I'm down to the preaching level for the Florence Baptist Temple probably. I had a filthy mouth. I enjoyed a good dirty joke. Or I couldn't go the whole day and not use curse words frequently. But God came and saved me and he changed my heart. And you know what? A changed heart cleans up a filthy mouth. And I'm a new creature. And I don't sin as much. I'm not perfect. No, I'm not perfect at all. I'm far from perfect, but God is doing a work in my life. And every time I violate right and wrong, that 
conscience comes up and that red light starts blinking in my heart and I know I've done wrong and I go back to the cross and I repent of my sins and the Lord forgives me and I start anew living for him. Now, if the church gets weak on the gospel, if the church ceases to proclaim the gospel, then you, know, you see already where I'm going. Sin is not restrained. You see, proclaiming the gospel becomes a force in all of society, a wall of protection that helps hold back the evil of the day. Christ used two metaphors in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said to his disciples, you're the salt of the earth. What's the purpose of salt other than to make your tomatoes taste better? The purpose of salt is to preserve. In days past, it was the only preservative we had. We didn't have refrigerators and freezers. And so we pickled things and we preserved the meat by salt. It was the preserving force. And God's people, you, me, we are the salt. We are to be the preserving force that holds back the rot and the putrefaction of a wicked and godless culture. And you know what? The more Christians there are, the more salt you put into the culture around us, then the greater the restraint against sin. And this wave of evil that's coming over America this morning why? Weak families, government that has forgotten its purpose, and weak churches that have put something else in the place of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The tragedy is that everything that God put in place to hold back sin, America is dismantling it. Stop and think about what I've said. Now, I began the message with a question. Why is there so much violence and evil? Because we're tearing down the wall that God put in society to hold back the evil. Does that make sense, church? Satan's attack on the family has been going on now how many years? We liberalized the divorce laws back in the 50s and 60s. And in so doing, we weakened the sacredness of marriage. We legalized abortion in 1973. And instead of mothers protecting and nurturing their children, they killed them. We redefined marriage. Obama said, if you love somebody, you ought to be able to marry them. Well, is that your sister or your horse or your Volkswagen? It's absurd. It is illogical and it's anti-biblical. And the war on the police that we're seeing today in the country has undermined the whole function of government. Defunding and demanding dismantling our police and our law enforcement. And listen, I, I tried to think of a better word, but it's crazy. It's nutso. Do you really want to live in a town with no policemen? 
Do you really want to call the social worker and say, there's a guy over here with a gun? Come on out and talk to him. <laughs> it's not so. It really is satanic. It's satanic, the source of that kind of, of thinking. This year, so far, the nationwide crime rate is up. We're only in May, 1st of May, four months have gone. The crime rate nationally right now is up 40% in America. And so I woke up this morning, and before I threw the cover back and got out of my bed, I heard about five or six different instances of violence, large enough to get national attention. And I heard yesterday as I was riding in my car that in New York, 4,500 police officers have already quit this year alone. And it's happening all across America. You see, we're dismantling the restraints that God placed in society. And the culture war on the church, education, media, entertainment, government, all of them attacking the church. And for the very first time in history, the governments across the country closed the churches. Now, thank God for South Carolina. And the closing that we did here, we did it voluntarily. And we really closed two times. It was our first time and last. I promise you that. Never again. Never again. Never again. And this war on the church... Until about two weeks ago when the Supreme Court ruled on it, and I'm sure you read, the churches were still closed in California and Michigan and New York and, and other states across the country, eight or ten states. Hadn't been open in a year. Churches closed for one year. Oh, we can watch online. That restraint is gone when the churches close when the families disintegrate, when the individuals are no longer trained to have a God-fearing conscience, the restraints are broken. It's interesting to me that in some places, the crime rate is higher than 40% increase this year, and in every case, it's where the churches were closed. <laughs> Logic and the Bible do mix, don't they? And where they closed the churches for a year, California, New York, the crime rate out the roof. So here's the point. The whole point of this series of messages is to take these three divine institutions, family, government, and church, and look at God's Word and see how they interface what their roles are, how they work together to carry out God's purposes in a culture. And when they work together and they're strong, life can be good, even in a sinful, broken world. But when those institutions are weakened and broken, then life is not going to be as good. Stand to your feet with me, if you will.